Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where my friend Chris and myself, John, talk about some movies we love. Chris, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing okay. How are you doing tonight, John? Uh, I'm glad to be just relaxing, chatting with you, enjoying the end of uh, the end of a weird week, uh, which I think I speak for both of us there. Um, but yeah, this is going to be, I think we're going to call it like a bonus episode, because it's not going to fit the typical format that we normally do. And uh, it's uh, it's probably going to go up sort of in between our normal monthly episodes as well. Um, we the way that our show is kind of works by design is that we tend to not focus on the most uh, topical, current, trendy kinds of movies because we have responsibilities that keep us from doing so. Uh, but we do happen to see a lot of movies and I thought that it would be fun for us to talk for a little bit about uh, what some of our favorite movies of the year were. So this will be a best of 2019 episode. Um, and I think both of us don't feel that strongly about uh, strict rankings as such, but more just the stuff that we feel best about and stuff that we want to sing the praises of because otherwise it probably wouldn't, come up for us does that sound about fair right to you yeah i i think in particular for me this was probably one of the worst years just in terms of my ability to see films and kind of stay current with what was going on in the year um there's a lot of stuff i didn't get to a lot of stuff i really wanted to get to so for me this is three films um we each picked three uh that stuck with me in a way things that i felt i had maybe a little something to share about and wanted to talk about but uh yeah th this will be an interesting one um really just more for where our kind of heads and hearts were in, in the current cinematic climate and then uh, we'll get back to the nitty-gritty of older films and genre films and theme films with the next episode Chris, do you want to get us started with your first pick for the night? Yeah. So, um, again, I didn't see a lot of films this year. And the films that I'm I'm going to be honest with that I'm really, really crazy about are all the films that you're going to be talking about. So I'm looking forward to those. But there are three separate ones that um, really struck me in a personal way. So the first one that I want to talk about um, is Ad Astra, um, starring Brad Pitt and written and directed by James Gray. If you know James Gray, um, probably the biggest thing that I know him from, uh, from his filmography, is The Immigrant, which was a fantastic movie um, that he did a few years back. He also did, I think his previous film was an adaptation of The Lost City of Z. Um he did We Own the Night. He's done quite a few films with uh, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, uh, We Own the Night, The Yards uh, before then. But Ad Astra starring Brad Pitt is, uh, is, a, is a different thing altogether. Um, it's ostensibly uh, a science fiction film. Basically, uh, Brad Pitt plays an astronaut uh, who is incredibly calm under pressure um, and finds out that... Uh, there are these electronic uh, pulses or flares that are emanating from the far reaches of uh, the solar system and striking Earth and causing all of this havoc. Um, and he is selected on a very top secret mission to go out uh, to Uranus um, uh, 
because they believe that um, a factor in these pulses that are destroying the earth could be his father, who was played by Tommy Lee Jones, was one of the most decorated astronauts in the history of NASA, had gone out on a manned mission to seek out extraterrestrial life and was never heard from again. Um, so the story follows Brad Pitt's adventures as he travels out to the edges of the solar system to see uh, what is the cause of the flares and to um, potentially reconnect with a father that he had thought had been dead for years. So that's kind of the the crux of the story. Um, the thing that really hit me with it and the thing I wanted to talk to you about, John, is um, one of the things that James Gray is great about doing is kind of taking genre, whether it's um, kind of the jungle adventures of uh, his previous film or the very um, Stanley Kubrick 2001 influence here of Ad Astra, and using it to talk about something different. In in, in this case, this is very much a film about... Um, it, it, it's about a lot of things, but most of all, it's it's kind of a a um, treatise on masculinity, uh, on the role of fathers and sons in that relationship and kind of searching for things that, um, that may not in the grand scheme of things really be all that important because of the things you lose in the course of that search. Um, for those reasons, especially the whole father-son connection, that that's always, I'll be the first to admit, is a huge trigger point for me. But uh, uh, there's so many things that surprise me about the film, from some of the action set pieces, which are really, really well done, something I didn't expect from James Gray, uh, to Brad Pitt's performance, who we're going to talk about Brad Pitt again later in another, in another film. But uh, this is such a, a quiet kind of understated performance for him, even when he's in the midst of fighting a crazed baboon in space, which is one of the best surprises <laughs> of 2019 for me. Um, this is something that just for its visual beauty and for its kind of contemplative um, at attitude really, really stuck with me um, since I, I first saw it. Uh, I know you saw it more recently with your uh, wife. What, what were your thoughts on it in general? I tend to be a sucker for uh, movies in space, especially if they're about feelings. Uh, so for see, for example, Interstellar, um, I think is probably space feelings. Space feelings. <laughs> Gotta love them. I, <clears throat> I, I do think that Interstellar is probably my closest comparison in terms of like the, the, it being exploring space and also. Uh, the sort of the emotional undercurrents that uh, that run throughout, I, and so that already sells me on it uh, to a certain point and to a certain extent. I think that is is fairly well done. I do like Brad Pitt's performance as being sort of that someone who has been forced to completely disengage from his emotions for safe, like for and and sort of like having that sort of brought to the surface against his will as he uh progresses through his journey um i think there was there were parts like the i i think where 
the the movie does action best is when they are on the rover and being chased by space pirates um and they're just shooting at each other uh across the thing it's it's you can you know that it's tense and dangerous but because of the low gravity of the whole thing everything still feels sort of of the same like it feels in line with the rest of the movie like the sort of calm sereneness of it um and i think the uh the the animal attack that you referenced earlier um is something that i think completely it 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 feels like a violent uh sort of intrusion into that space um in a way that i'm would hope i would guess is probably intentional um but i know that for myself and for my wife that moment was it felt it almost like distracted in a sense like like i get that there needs to be like a danger to it. And it is surprising. Like I certainly didn't see ape attack in a space movie uh, coming. Um, no one saw ape attack. In a yeah, space no, movie like it, it is, it is genuinely surprising. Uh, it was, it was, it was a, one of the few moments in the film where I was like, I, I actually don't know if I would have kept that or try to think of a different way to do it. Um, I th- the other thing that struck me as a bit odd was the way like he's Brad Pitt is so measured, so calculated. He knows everything. He's in control. That's the whole point of the movie, right? Um, except up until the point where uh, you know he's not, and he sort of starts to fall apart, um, or as he starts to like get in touch with his emotions again, he starts to uh, uh, collapse. Actually, in that sense, it feels. Uh, that reminds me a bit of the uh, Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049, um, where he's expected to sort of main, maintain a completely neutral emotional affect until uh, he can't anymore. Um, but when he finds... So in the story, he first has to go to the moon, then he goes to Mars when he's going to launch... Uh, uh, or, well he's supposed to get to Mars where he'll try to make contact with his father. But then uh, he decides that he's going to actually get onto the ship. That's going to go to track down his father. And that's where he sort of breaks from the plan. Um, And in the, in the sense of constructing the movie where this is the thing that he like as a character, he has to get on that ship. And so he's going to do whatever he can and he has to do it immediately. So there's no time to like come up with something that is more elaborate or uh, thoughtful or sophisticated. But for, for someone who has up until this point had complete control over his entire circumstances, his entire plan to get on the ship is batshit insane. (laughs) Like it is the least thought through. I was like, this is crazy. Like, because what happens is is that he gets onto the ship they're like oh like because i I'm, I'm no astronaut but i know that like if you are on a if you're on like in, in like and this isn't just like science fiction this is the real thing like they have to account for every single bit of weight on the ship and so like if brad pitt's on the ship that affects the weight which affects the fuel and so that throws everything off right so his presence is already a disruption 
and then they see that and go, well, you have to, you know, you have to leave, step, disengage, and then ends up with a really clumsy uh, gunfight that ends with the crew dead. <laughs> and although I do like the 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 parallels of him being like, well, this I meant to do the right thing, but this got out of control, and now everyone's dead except for me, which is exactly what his dad does later in the movie. Um, yeah. But the the actual thing of like, how did he think he was going to get on this ship in a way that was going to succeed without hurting anyone? It seems that that was, I think the only moment in the movie where I was like, "Ah, come on, Brad Pitt, you could like, I don't know if there's a different way to have done it based on how the movie is structured, but I kind of walked away from that encounter going, Brad Pitt is not, that should have, uh, that that feels like a failure on Brad Pitt's part. Not or sorry, the character, not the actor, obviously. <laughs> so so I think that that's where so we may differ a little bit in the the interpretation or reading of of the film, or it, it, at least in our allowance of the excuse me the the gravity of the film or or, or the way that that the film plays with genre. Um, one of the things that I had to think a lot about after the movie was, is this a science fiction film? I mean, it certainly plays with tenets of science fiction. And it takes place in space. <clears throat> and there are space pirates, as you alluded to. So again, if anyone thought that this was going to be a boring movie, um, if I can't, if I, I, I cannot stress enough, space pirates, space baboon attack, um, and the opening scene as, as, as well, which essentially involves a free fall from um, outer space back to earth. It, it, this, there are moments of just pure thrill in the film, but when it comes down to it, this is not a science fiction film, at least to me, this is, this is, it's a fine line. And, and I, I think you, you can rightly argue that if you're going to use the tenets of the genre, you need to at least adhere to it, you know, somewhat closely, but Really, Gray is just using this as a metaphor for um, the way we are affected by family and and the way our familial relationships inform who we are. So uh, the whole Mars sequence, which if nothing else, I got to give it up to. um, There are so many great supporting players in this film, um, considering that it's basically a one man show for, for Brad Pitt, but Ruth Nega. Um, plays a, a, a key person on Mars when he lands there. One of uh, Brad Pitt's other confidants is Donald Sutherland, um, who just, despite getting older and older and older, is just impossible to look away from. He's got such a face and such a such a manner that just makes him um, a magnet every time he's on on screen. But uh, the sequence you're talking about, which is a little crazy, and, and there are are, are certainly kind of visual images that lend itself to kind of, you know, crawling underwater through this huge umbilical cord to get onto a ship kind of in a way that doesn't make really much narrative sense. There must've been an easier way to do what he did, but it really comes down to, he is, um, his whole thing is his world is completely ordered and under 80 beats per minute until he has to actually deal with the thing that he has never dealt with, which is his father and his relationship, his feelings toward his father's abandonment of him. And it's when those things kind of are brought to the forefront that he can't think clearly and and he can't think like the way he could in every other scenario up until this point. He does things that are stupid and he does things that 
even though they work out, probably shouldn't work out the way they do. Um, it's just kind of dumb luck that he's able to get onto the ship that uh, it travels out to Uranus and uh, Neptune. It's dumb luck that the crazy kind of gunshots that happen when he attempts to kind of board the crew and, and the crew quite rightly doesn't know what he's doing and so tries to subdue him and winds up all getting killed in the process. It's dumb luck that he survives that because... At that point, this film stops making sense as pure science fiction and just starts working on more of an emotional level. And it's despite the fact that even saying that, I feel that the first half of the movie is much stronger than the second half when he actually does all of this and gets to the interaction with his father and and, and, and what happens there. Um, the 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 feelings and the metaphors that Gray draws upon are enough to just again I I, I take this movie probably more personally than I'm going to take the other movies we'll talk about but it's enough to just really really stick with me and that coupled with the visuals that he puts together makes this a striking movie that's really hard for me to ignore absolutely and if we're going to talk about supporting uh, supporting players in this movie I was just like surprised and delighted for natasha leone to show up in her brief scene on mars i was like oh yeah what the hell is natasha leone doing on mars that was great um and i think as far as like as far as the like the movie being about the, the the emotions and stuff i think that's what i'm actually like i think that's where the movie has me most in the pocket uh similar to you i i like that stuff that's what the stuff that resonates with me the most i think and i think overall i do like the film um i think if i had a and and as for the the mars sequence where he gets away and ends up accidentally killing everyone i think even if there was just like a small like just someone saying your plan is crazy and it doesn't work you're flying off the rails uh then i could be like okay i think the movie knows that what he's doing is insane and i can live with that but i think but more generally, I think there's just a couple places where the 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 tone feels off. I think for what isn't going in that scene, it's like so there's just a couple of mismatches here and there. But I do, but I was happy you picked it because I that you picking it was what got me to watch it, and uh, I was happy to have watched it. So thank you. If nothing else, um, I, I I think we're in a really great time for for space movies, uh, for movies that are kind of grounded in reality. Um, this first man from a couple years before you mentioned interstellar from a few years before that, uh, this is a great time for those types of movies. And, and I've always been a sucker for kind of man reaching out into the stars. So this was, uh, this was a, a, a great reminder of kind of the wonder of outer space for me. And I, 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 I just cherish it since I, I saw it. All right, so John, why don't you uh, take us away with the next pick? My first pick for the night is Booksmart, uh, directed by Olivia Wilde and starring Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein. Hoping I'm getting all of those names right. Um, this is a coming-of-age comedy film. Uh, if you're familiar with Superbad, this feels like it is sort of working off of a mold set by that movie. Um, <clears throat> but that movie, it, it does a lot of really fun and hilarious things to sort of update it for 2019. And I think 
what I really like, like there, there's a, there's just, it's just a hilarious movie. Like on, on nothing else, I could just say you absolutely need to see Booksmart because it's hilarious, uh, and it's well written and well performed. Um, I think, like that would just be enough. But I think that some of the things that take it to be one of my picks for the year um, include things like it does, uh, it, 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 esta- it very quickly establishes flaws in our protagonists and also establishes their like their rivalries with other people while making those rivals sympathetic in their own right. So there's no one that, there's people at various times where you're like, well, that was a bad thing to do and I sometimes don't like you, but you don't, no one ever comes off as like cartoonishly evil. Like it feels for the, the dynamics of all the different relationships, uh, well, okay, there is there is one actual uh, serial killer, uh, but him aside. Uh, <laughs> but like all the high school people that they interact uh, that they interact with, even when they're at odds with each other, there's no one ever left feeling like you just like straight out irredeemably hate them, um, which I think is cool, and it doesn't sacrifice on the comedy. Um, I think, and, and related to that. Uh, in the year of our lord 2019 where everyone who does comedy is constantly yelling about what do you mean i can't make jokes about race or women or etc etc you i can't be funny anymore this is a movie that very fits that's very like it is very conscious of the year that it's in when there's conversations around like you know gender and sexuality and stuff but it is just absolutely hilarious and it doesn't rely on the like the argument that gross old white men make is that well i can't it's if we can't say these things anymore then we can't be funny and this is like like exhibit a in cases of no actually it's entirely possible to make like gut busting hilarious movies that will that are just funny on their own merits without resorting to some of that gross stuff um that we just don't want to see in movies anymore. Um, and then of course, I think it's, I, one of my favorite things, uh, to discover about this movie was of course the realization, maybe other people knew this, but the, like we talked about the super bad comparison. Um, it, it should be noted that Beanie Feldstein is Jonah Hill's sister. And I just like how those, I like how all that sort of parallels and lines up i'm babbling at this point it's just great <laughs> um let me take the reins for a second because yeah. i i 100 agree with you i loved this movie um so a couple of things in case it wasn't already obvious from your description this very much is of the mold um of super bad um Right down to to your point, it's about two girls who sacrifice much of the fun in high school to study and go to great schools, only to find out that all of their um, supposed um, enemies in high school um, also got into great schools and didn't have to sacrifice the fun. So they have, on the night before graduation, they decide that they're going to let it all hang loose and have one night of debauched fun to make up for the four years that they lost out on. And of course, they learn a couple of lessons along the way as they do that. And that's essentially what this movie is in a nutshell. What is so surprising about it, um, Olivia Wilde, who is an actress that I have liked for a long time, this is her feature directorial debut. 
and she kills it. She brings a real analog warmth to the movie that I just, I, I wasn't expecting. I had heard good things about the movie. Wasn't planning on watching it. I watched it specifically because you and I had shared what our picks were. Um, so my wife and I sat down to kind of watch it together and it was from beginning to end. It was a blast and it is very funny. Um, it is beautifully shot. It is beautifully put together, but I think the best thing that this movie does, which I don't think Superbad really does, um, is is how wonderfully it treats the relationship between Amy and Molly. So um, uh, Caitlin Dever, who ever since I saw her in season two of uh, Justified, one of the greatest TV shows that ever came into being. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I've always loved her. And you totally blew my mind because I did not know that Molly Beanie Feldstein was Jonah Hill's sister. But now that I do, it just brings everything into just, just even sharper relief. Um, what this movie gets right that so many films and even super bad tends to fail on is how... In reality, friendship can, I mean, true friendship can really weather any storm and do it fairly quickly. Uh, th th the thing that this film does right, that so many films do does wrong, is when you have the big blow up like they have at the party and you never understood me and you lied to me, never told me that you're going away. It, it, the, the, the basic setup that, that divides two friends. This film immediately tells you that you know that Literally the next morning, they're going to be okay. And there's no shorthand that's needed to kind of explain that away because that's what friends are like. Uh, friends forgive each other. Friends realize that you have a momentary outburst and the, real the reality is in most cases that the next morning you go, man, that was really stupid. And you immediately fall back to that that love and that friendship that you've had for so long. This film understands that. This film doesn't try to shortcut or lie its way around what a really what a real friendship does um and amy and molly have that and the two ac actresses um caitlin dever beanie feldstein they portray it so well um it, it it's one of the standout relationships of the year when it comes to films uh and that being said it is hilarious. It is visually hilarious. Holy God, Billy Lord, who plays Gigi in this movie, is maybe my favorite film character of 2019. I love her so much. Uh, she's kind of the crazy, you know, gonna do anything, jump off a boat, fight a guy with a cracked bottle. But there's so much motivation behind her craziness and what she does. It just makes her... Uh, it just makes her a wonder in a film that has so many wonders. There's stop motion animation. There is a oh, drug shit. scene. That part was so good. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there is a drug scene that is, that is just laugh out loud, hysterical. There are stereotypes that are played as stereotypes for a very specific reason to then kind of be subverted later. And, um, and, and, and it just, it, it just ends beautifully. It, it, it ends in a way that is sensitive and funny and touches on what makes friendship as wonderful as it can be. I, I cannot say enough about how wonderful this movie is. I think before we move on, I, I do want to echo your point about Billy Lord. I think that she is as close to literal magic as exists in this world, in this movie. Um, she just literally appears out of nowhere 
in several scenes and it is i mean it's it's they they react appropriately like what the hell are you doing here like you weren't here a minute ago but it's but just her whole presence just sort of is revelatory um yeah she 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 is the manic pixie dream girl excuse me amped up on amphetamines but but with a purpose that kind of lays to rest what a manic pixie dream girl should be doing in a movie like this um because she's not the unattainable you know kind of uh lead that anyone's chasing after this movie isn't about that this movie positions her as almost the um the pillar of wisdom that guides the film down its course and and she is a freaking delight in this movie and they introduce her as sort of this like uh one percent uh completely like disaffected rich kid that you should that in this kind of movie you should be taught to hate but she is uh but she they absolutely do a great job and in the writing and the performance of the character um so yeah, yeah. and they do that time and time again um the other person that that he, it, it's a little bit of a lighter role, but um, I'm, I'm looking at the name now. Skylar Jasando as Jared, um, who's Gigi's kind of partner um, and eventually becomes, in a way, the the romantic interest of Molly. He is played entirely for laughs and looks to be one character. And over the course of his buffoonery, you see a real heartbeat there and you see uh, that... The way that you perceived him in the beginning, even though he never changes in how he behaves or how he acts, um, you just start the, the trick of the movie. The, the magic of the movie is never changing how he performs or acts, but the movie making you see him in a different, much better light. Um, and it does that with uh, GG, too. And it, it's it's just such a it's just such a gift that the movie has to be able to do that with these characters. Yeah, I was I was happy to see him in that movie too. Being a huge Santa Clarita Diet fan, uh, if that's not a show you've seen, I definitely it's it's hilarious, and he plays a similar a similar kind of character. But uh, uh, yeah, he does he also does really good work here. I have not, but now that I know that he's in it, I am I am bumping that up to the top to uh, watch. It's uh, it's unfortunately been canceled, but there's three seasons on Netflix, and Drew Barrymore and uh, well, actually Raylan Givens himself are the two. Leads. I know Raylan is in it, and it, for some reason, it just it, I have I've had barred entry because he is not actually Raylan Givens in the move in the show. So, but the, we'll try not to hold that against him. <laughs> <laughs> I right, won't. <laughs> Great pick, though. This is this is a wonderful movie from beginning to end. Chris, why don't you take us to uh, your next pick? Sure. So I'm changing things up a bit. Um, Originally, my next pick was going to be The Irishman. Um, At the time that we are kind of making our picks, I had just seen it. It was fresh in my mind, and there were lingering things about it that I I thought I wanted to talk about. The interesting thing is, as as weeks have gone on, we've had to we've had to delay this episode for for family functions and things of that nature. Another film that I saw at the same time continued to linger with me. So unfortunately, this is one that I don't think we both got to see, but I do want to briefly talk about it. And that is The Farewell by Lulu Wang. Um, 
uh, it, it, it's getting a lot more notice now because um, its primary star, Aquafina, just won Best Actress at the Golden Globes. Um, and also for um, a, a news item that, that just came out um, about the the grandmother that the film is based on. So we'll we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But what the movie is about is it's basically a comedy. Um, it's a dramedy, I, I guess that's the, the term for it, about a very New York young Chinese woman named um, Billy, played by Aquafina. Her parents emigrated over from China and uh, w- with her when she was a child for a better life in America. She is fully assimilated into American culture, but she has a very tight relationship with her um, paternal grandmother, Nai Nai. Uh, she talks to her on the phone all all the time, and she comes to find out that her grandmother is dying of cancer, terminal lung cancer. But the family um, is not going to tell her that. They do everything in their power to keep her diagnosis from her. Um, and in order to give her kind of um, um, moments of happiness, they arrange kind of a, a fake wedding uh, with one of... Aquafina, her name is Billy, one of her cousins, um, which precipitates a trip back to China for the whole family. Um, uh, according to the grandmother, to to you know to come to this wedding, but the real reason is for the family to see the grandmother one last time because of the diagnosis. Um, so it sounds like there's a couple of things. There's a fish out of water as Billy goes back to China after years being in America. Um, there's the can they keep a secret and keep the grandmother from finding out that she's dying of, of, of cancer. So there's a lot of moments that lend itself to kind of broader comedy. And this movie is very funny. But where it really finds its strength is in... Uh, the heart and the reasoning behind, you know, why the family decides to do what they do and the class of cultures and where the real kind of love in this movie comes out is Billy, who loves her grandmother, almost to the exception of her immediate parents. Her her parents are totally on board with keeping this a secret. There is some definite kind of friction between Billy and her mother um, because of friction that her mother has with, with, with Nai Nai. Um, Billy can't understand why they don't love their grandmother enough to tell her the truth of her diagnosis. And what's so fascinating about about the film is the answer that comes back. And it's, it's that very love that prohibits them from telling her about the diagnosis. So because of that conflict just arises this amazing family kind of comedy drama. Um, the performances across the board are absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm going to screw these names up so much. So I apologize, but Zhao Sh- uh, Shuzhen is Nai Nai, the grandmother. She is just, she is apparently is a huge star in China. She is unbelievable here. Um, but special kind of accolades have to be given to um, her sister, uh, who is played by Lulu Wang's real life um, great aunt in the movie. I, I should mention, this is based on a true story. Um, Lulu Wang, the writer-director, this is this is about her grandmother um, being diagnosed with cancer and the family deciding not to tell her about it. And um, 
couple of things kind of have come to light recently, but this has for me the greatest ending in 2019, which is when you, you see the movie end and you find out at the time of the movie's filming that it has been six years. Um, she still doesn't know that she has cancer. And what's truly interesting is only a couple of days ago before recording, it's uh, January 10th, 2020 right now, only a couple of days before the movies recently opened in China, um, her grandmother just found out because of the reviews that she does have cancer. So we're, we're kind of in this um, stage of anticipation of what's going to happen now. But at the time of the movie's filming, you see her in real life at the end and kind of a quick post credit sequence that she, she's still happy. She's still going and she still has no idea that she's diagnosed with this. It is uh, it's one of those movies that you are bawling with tears as you are bursting with, with laughter. Um, and in a year that's been particularly hard for a lot of people, this was, you know, just the movie that I needed to see at the time that I saw it. I, uh, I'd be curious, I mean, <clears throat> not having been familiar with that particular detail, I'd be curious if, uh, uh, to know if, uh, if, uh, Lulu Wang in, uh, putting together the movie, consider that as a possible option that uh if the movie does well enough that people talk about it enough that her grandmother actually finds out that way but yeah uh, it's you know i'm i'm not sure i'm i'm really interested to kind of dive a little bit deeper in into it so apparently before it was a movie um this was a story that lulu wang uh, shared on npr's this american life so so there is there is um, a, a segment that I guess aired in 2016 about this. So this has been going on for quite a while. Um, I have to imagine she probably realized that the secret couldn't be kept forever. And, you, you know, cancer being the fucker that it is, um, we can talk about um, maybe at the end. We are recording this on the day that it was announced that Neil Peart, uh, the drummer and lyricist for Rush, just died. Um, it was announced today, but he actually died a couple of days ago of cancer as, as well. Um, she had to have imagined maybe during the course of filming that her mother probably, her grandmother may have gotten to a stage by now where she would have known. Um, and it just so happened that that wasn't the case. So it, it, it's hard to, to know what maybe the thinking around keeping the secret was, but the beauty of the film is that the secret doesn't matter. Um, the way that the narrative kind of weaves and the way that it really forces you to kind of understand culture and family in a way that, especially for Western audiences, is going to come as something very different. Um, I, I think that's the revelation that this movie shares with with people. And, and it's it's just it's a beautiful um, it's just such a beautiful, small film. Yeah, it's this is I have a I have a note on my phone of 2019 movies that I need to see. And as of this recording, there is one movie on it and it is The Farewell. Um, yeah. Yeah, but. there's 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 something to be said, too, with, you know, I, I've been reading a little bit about this as well. We're in an age where. Especially in theaters, movies come and go and we're left to basically our various streaming opportunities to see these things. But when you look at a Netflix or an Amazon prime, um, they're so busy with their algorithms and recommendations to recommend their own produced material that it's so easy for a film like this to slip through people's fingers because there are so few opportunities for it to, um, 
get word of mouth, to get recommended when we're in a world where people are binge watching television shows and the streaming services are so intent upon their own content that smaller films like this could conceivably get lost among the the cracks. So if this podcast does anything, um, find this film um i had heard about it and i wound up buying it because there was a sale on amazon i was gonna rent it for four bucks but i could own it for seven and i was like well for seven bucks i'll take the splurge because it's less than a movie ticket um to own this 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 movie and i'm so glad that i did for for what it what it does for family and what it does for the Asian community and what it does for Lulu Wang for what it does to bring up a new voice um, that that is necessary and vital in today's kind of blockbuster cinematic uh, economy. Yeah. No same doubt. thing with Olivia Wilde and Booksmart, right? I mean, it, it's almost the same thing in terms of finding these voices and, and elevating them when we can. So that'll wrap it up for the farewell. Um, we're moving right along. John, what is your next pick to talk about? My next pick is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, uh, starring a whole cavalcade of uh, amazing actors, uh, but led up by Anna de Armas and Daniel Craig. And I ordered them that way because while the trailers and marketing material uh showcase daniel craig's uh absolutely wonderful and sumptuous uh southern accent uh the movie actually belongs to anna de armas um and i think what is like i it's hard, like i can give some general plot overviews but we won't get too specific because this is like a murder mystery ass story where the plots are so intricate and so tightly plotted um yeah that to 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 actually describe it would just ruin the fun of like going through everything um, yeah this will be the one time because the movies are so recent that at least for I would say at least for Knives Out, let's let's try to stay away from spoilers as much as possible. But like, but I think the trailers even give you basically what you need, which is that a wealthy uh, murder mystery novelist uh, passes away, and Daniel Craig's private investigator is brought on to investigate his death and sort of look into the. Uh, possible suspects and so they go through all of his extended uh kids uh spouses grandkids all that stuff and uh and also uh and anna de armas plays his sort of uh his nurse his healthcare provider and the it, it, it this is like and ryan johnson talks about this too like he's this is very much a uh in the style of agatha christie uh poirot kind of stuff the, very much and then but i i think where the a good chunk of the middle of the movie actually switches the perspective so that you're following uh anna de armas instead of daniel craig and so the 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 mystery and the murder uh the the the, the murder mystery aspect of it sort of fades into the background as anna de armas you stay with her and try to figure out how she's going to um, survive her predicament, which we won't, uh, which 
yeah. that ends up taking it actually outside of that particular genre, except at the very end, except at the end when it all sort of like comes crashing back and ends up being the, the, the actual resolution ends up being just as like tightly wound and perfectly calculated um, where everything that is set up gets paid off. And the reason why it's on this list, in addition to like wonderful performances from across the board, every single like large and small roles, I think everyone's on fire in this movie and um, hellfire. Yeah. Uh, It's, 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 it's amazing performances. Everything is just so like, it's basically you're watching a clockwork is, is what it's having. Everything is just so precise. Um, Perfect description. And then, and then it's, it's precise. It's hilarious. And, and through Anna Armas's character specifically, like, there's pathos like you actually like super give a shit about uh um about what she's going through and why that's impactful to her um yeah this is just a stunning this is a stunning movie that i can't wait to see again what about you I 100% like i said i am as much as i love the movies i'm talking about um if I were to rank all of my 2019 movies in order, the three that you're talking about, I think almost all of them come before the three that I'm talking about. I love Knives Out. Um, so, but I, I have to give that with a word of caution as well. I unobjectively love Ryan Johnson. I have been exposed to all of his movies in order. So I first came to notice him with Brick. So every movie that of his that's come out since then, I've I've seen as soon as it's been released. Um, so between um, Brick, Brothers Bloom, uh, Looper, um, Star Wars, and now Knives Out, uh, I have always been in the bag for the way that this guy writes and directs a film. The fact that this comes out after The Last Jedi, which we can talk maybe very briefly about the new Star Wars movie at the end with some of the other 2019 films that we've seen. But um, the the fact that he left off of what is, I think, one of the best Star Wars films to ever be made to do something like this um, is such a credit not not only to him, but, but falls perfectly in line with kind of the types of things that he does. You hit the nail on the head with the clockwork um, comparison to this film. This film is constructed to within an inch of its life. And the, the credit of that, very similar to your other movie that we're going to talk about, is how wonderfully the execution of that construction plays out because it's very easy to construct a murder mystery and have it play in such a way that you understand the beats because a murder mystery is a murder mystery. And Johnson is very much playing in the wheelhouse of Agatha Christie and Hercule Poirot and, and detectives of that ilk with um, Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc. But what he does here is kind of upended. The mystery is established in the first act. And then to your point, the second act takes a complete left-hand turn um, with Ana de, Arm- de um, Armas and, and her predicament. And you follow her character um, and then kind of comes back around to the classic murder mystery reveal at the end. It is it is 
It is constructed to within an inch of its life, and yet there is never a moment where this thing feels pre-established. There's never a moment where this movie feels premeditated. There's never a moment where I'm not smiling or laughing out loud. And that's purely because of the way that Ryan Johnson makes the movie breathe. It's in every line of his script. It's in every performance from his un frickin' believable cast. Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, um, uh, uh, Jaden Martell, who if you saw the... Um, the um, adaptation of Stephen King's It, he he's Bill Denbro. He's he's the the king of the losers. Um, and here he plays a masturbating Nazi, and it is hilarious. I'm I'm so glad that you said that because that was like I think Daniel Craig making an offhand reference to the masturbating Nazi child. <laughs> <laughs> I almost died. Um, and then my other highlight for specific lines of dialogue, I think, and this is probably just, um, I think you'll appreciate as a, as a Hamilton fan as well, is when Don Johnson uh, tries to reassure Anna de Armas, or he's, he's, he talks about how, yeah. how progressive he is, and he's like, I saw Hamilton at the public. Which, like, yeah. that's a, like, you have to know enough about Hamilton to write that, but that's also like that movie could be transplanted from get out as like the thing, a a shitty white progressive person would say to try and seem cool with their, uh, person of color friend and i was like yeah because of course i mean no this this isn't a spoiler don johnson like all the rest of the people in that family are big pieces of shit um well well that's the other thing about this this movie this movie is on its service on its surface in its construction and in its execution and i and agatha christie right murder who done it but that is certainly not all this is this is a very modern commentary on race on class, on privilege, on the one percenters versus the 99%. It is all of these things, but it's in it's it's in it's all of those things in a way that is not heavy handed, that is not calling um, accolades to itself for being so smart and above it all. It is it is simply using the tools of the genre, very much like Ad Astra, it's using the tools of the genre to comment on other things in a way that is very prescient and very of the moment. And it is, it is brilliant. It, it, there's just not a moment that doesn't work. Um, right down to, I love um, Justin Gordon-Levitt. He is in every single Ryan Johnson film, whether you know it or not. He has a small cameo in here um, as the voice of one of the detectives on the TV show that is being watched by the family in the beginning. And it is there's just not a moment here that is not precisely calibrated to yield enjoyment uh, and 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 an excitement from me. It, it, It is it is a finely uh it is a finely crafted gem unlike almost anything else that came out out this year i would never have expected that a coffee mug introduced in the first scene would have the that just seems like a perfunctory (laughs) breakfast thing uh that should have no importance at all ends up becoming the signature moment at the end of the movie that everything revolves around i'm just like holy shit they brought back the coffee mug that's great nothing is wasted in the film nothing nothing
Chris, why don't you take us to your last pick for the night? Sure. So my last pick of the night is probably going to be the most widely known of the films that we're talking about today. Um, and again, I, everything that I picked, I, I picked for very personal reasons. They, they've personally resonated with, with me. I have no interest right now in arguing over its objective merits as a, as one film versus another. Uh, there's no such thing as that in this type of discussion. So without, uh, without belaboring the point, my last film that I want to talk about is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, depending on how you want to count it, this is either his ninth or his tenth. He will say it's his ninth, and I agree with him. The ninth film in his filmography. It is his ode to um, the classic days of Hollywood, particularly in the late 60s leading up to 69, that time of um, cinematic revolution. If you've ever read... Uh, uh, great book by Mark Harris. Um, pictures at at Revolution Five. Five movies that they that kind of changed the face of Hollywood. It talks about this time, but the movie stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt as a famous kind of fifties and early sixties television cowboy actor and his stuntman as they kind of come to a crossroads in their lives where. Hollywood is changing and the type of roles that and, and acting that they have been known for is kind of going along a different path, one that they might not be especially suited for. Um, that whole line is aligned against or around uh, Sharon Tate coming to Hollywood and getting her fresh start with Roman Polanski and how all of these things kind of intersect with one fateful night because of a gentleman named Charles Manson um, and uh, his history with Sharon Tate and how that may or may not come to fruition um, in Quentin Tarantino's world. So uh, that that's kind of what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is on its surface. What it actually is and what it means more to me is very much kind of how Quentin Tarantino phrases it. Um, in some of the interviews that I've seen, seen with him. And that is that this is really more than anything else. This is a love letter to the type of Hollywood that Tarantino grew up with as a child, um, which is something that certainly resonates with me and, and the way that Hollywood has always been for me growing up. Um, him being a writer and a director of some renown, it allows him the free, the, freedom and the leeway to take that and craft a story that allows him to kind of reminisce in that time and write some wrongs uh, that he found when that change kind of came about. So in that way, this, this movie bears a striking similarity to um, Inglorious Bastards and uh, Django Unchained. Uh, it definitely plays with history and it's very shocking and very tonally abrupt finale. Um, but I think that is his prerogative to do so. I, I, I think it's a very personal choice and works better here than it does in any of his previous films. This is, th this movie is basically Tarantino's kind of 
love letter to the type of Hollywood that made him the director and the writer that he is. Um, and if he wants to give it a happy ending, a happy ending that it didn't get in reality, um, I understand that. This is a movie about creating a second chance, um, not only for the actual people in history, but for him and ourself as moviegoers watching this and being able to have kind of a second lease on on the things that matter and and mean the most to us and the fact that he does it kind of wrapped in this shaggy dog actor movie and and kind of cross-pollination with real world history is it is just par for the course for Tarantino. It's it's sloppy, it's shaggy, it's a little long. Um, it's totally all over the place, but that's what life is in its reality. And and it 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 really struck me in a way much more than certainly his um last film, The Hateful Eight, did. Um this brings me right back to Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards, which are two of my favorite films of, of his. But in, 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 in this case, even though the trick seems like an old dog now of we're going to turn history up on its head, and we'll talk about that a little bit if we want to, because I, I think the movie's been out enough now that, that, that we can. I think in this instance, that turning on its head is a much more personal statement than it was in the previous films. So let me kind of throw it to you, John. Um, I kind of rambled a bit. We're, we're into hour two of our discussion. I'm at which was supposed half, to be a short episode. Which was supposed to be short. I'm a bourbon and a half in. So, John, l- let me throw it to you, um, particularly around the ending. Um, how, how does the movie work for you, but particularly how does the ending work for you? Um, a lot of people say that this is him kind of riding the same kind of trick pony a third time. Um, did did you feel that way with how he kind of ends the film? Um, does it resonate more soundly w- with you than maybe it has in the past? What's your your basic take on um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, I think that the the I can summarize my feelings on the ending and actually bring that into my larger thoughts on the movie, which is that I do think that uh, the the reversal of sort of Leonardo DiCaprio preventing the uh, per, uh, for for them preventing the the Manson murders from happening uh, is it does feel like less resounding uh, and shocking than the ending of Inglorious Bastards does. Um, it's not. I wouldn't say it's not effective. It's just we have like it's perhaps it, we're not as unexpected by it um, as we were. Uh, the ending of Inglorious Bastards, but I think that where that doesn't necessarily bother me as much is that I think that th- Once Upon a Time in Hollywood feels like all of Qu- the entirety of Quentin Tarantino's essence put into a movie. Um, I think that the, there, are, I think sometimes like when uh, and to to dip into music for a second, you and I both like the Devin Townsend album that came out this year called Empath, where it felt like he was trying to take his entire career and squish it in like across like more than like 20 to 30 albums or however many he has. And like across many genres and trying to squeeze it all into one package. And this, and once upon a time in Hollywood to me feels like Quentin Tarantino trying to sum up his entire career in, in one, 
uh, movie. And so all of the, 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 the good, the bad, all the things that people want to say about Quentin Tarantino are things that you'll find in this movie. Um, and there is a lot of ink that gets spilled uh, about sort of what's up with Quentin Tarantino. But uh, I think that this does sort of, for better or worse, feel like and some uh, his attempt to to like sort of compile himself everything he's ever wanted to do in one movie, and I think that it there's does. and there's a there's a lot of parts of it that I really like. Um, I I think that the there's times when it feels like he's mostly just put together this movie as an excuse to shoot in the style of old cowboy and war movies, like, like the, the little, the little cutaways to like Leo's old action or old movies that doesn't get to be made anymore. I have a feeling that that's actually like what he wanted to do. Um, and then it's like, well, we have to find a reason to like try and shoot an old world war two movie, um, or a scene of it. That's entirely conjecture of course, but that's, uh, <laughs> it does sort of feel like, well, I'm, how can I put together, scenes from these kinds of movies that don't get made anymore that i love okay well we'll like the narrative for as weird as it can be if you think about it too hard um i actually doesn't bother me as much because i think actually what he wanted to do was just like just those scenes i think is and like for example the scene where leonardo dicaprio is dressed as the cowboy and he just acts opposite the girl and you don't like you're just in the scene and it's not until the scene finally finishes where it pulls away and you see all the camera or you see all the crew and stuff like in for that two or three minutes, you're actually just in there watching it. And like she comes back and tells him after it's the greatest acting I've ever seen, which I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but it was like incredibly compelling. And in that moment, I was like, fuck, I actually wish I was watching this. I actually wish I was watching that movie that they're shooting. Yeah, there, there's parts of it that I kind of go I, I don't resonate as much with, but other parts where I'm like, yeah, I, this is, this is a lot of fun. And I think trying to, trying to critique it on like the particulars of history when it is very clearly trying to like t sort of rearrange history seems weird. Like, like he's not trying to tell a true story. Um, he's trying to tell, you know, his or a version of his story that he wants to tell. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, he's definitely trying to tell the version as he would like it to be. I I, I think what the movie tries to do, I, I, I think this might be his most personal movie, and I think the whole, we we can just kind of hit into the ending. So yeah, at, at, at the end, um, Brad Pitt and um, Leonardo DiCaprio as movie... Uh, Television and movie star Rick Dalton and his um, his stuntman Cliff Booth, uh, they 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 basically foil um, the attempts of the Manson family to murder Sharon Tate. Uh, essentially, the Manson family comes to Dalton's house instead, and in a insane, over the top, violent scene involving flamethrowers and dogs. They kill the Manson family, basically um, the the ones who who came to do the murders, and it allows Sharon Tate to not only live but to invite uh, Rick Dalton over, giving Rick Dalton kind of a, for the briefest of moments, 
a glimmer of hope that the 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 type of Hollywood that he represents can maybe live on in this new world, which is, I think, at the heart of what Tarantino is wishing for. This is um, he's been very clear that the ho- the Hollywood and the times that he's depicting in the film is the type of Hollywood that he grew up in and as a sort of wish fulfillment he wants to see he wants to see that kind of that kind of content live on and being a writer director he's able to evince that in his films um so i think you know for that reason you can call it very narcissistic of him to do so but it's it, it it's very much in keeping with everything he's done to date um but to a much more personal degree here and just coming from that same kind of background of having grown up with that type of filmmaking and those those movies you mentioned um the scenes of Tarantino kind of reenacting and refilming some of Dalton's moments when he was a cowboy actor and a war actor the one that resonates the most with me was there's a moment in the film where he talks about he was in the running for the lead role in um, The Great Escape which eventually went to Steve McQueen and they show a sequence of the film that instead of Steve McQueen you see DiCaprio doing the role and it is it 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 that moment more almost more than anything else kind of struck me um very personally because i remember watching that film as a kid and and falling in love with mcqueen um particularly in that role more than any other um it's it's very um i i don't want to say narcissistic but this is very much a to your point it's a movie for Quentin Tarantino. This is the movie that I think sums up his his life and his loves and his themes and his peccadillos and even his faults and foibles. I mean, there's the one moment where if you don't know by now that Tarantino has a foot fetish, I mean, you will <laughs> at the end of this movie when uh, um, Margot Robbie um, playing Sharon Tate comes in to a theater to watch herself and for no reason kicks off her shoes and sticks her feet up on the chair to watch the film so that Tarantino can lovingly frame her feet uh, into the film. I, I mean, it, it's almost the same as what he did with Uma Thurman, Uma Thurman in the Kill Bill films and, and pretty much everyone else. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's, again, um, the specificity elicits the universal. It, it's something that I've come to time and time again, whether we're talking about music or we're talking about film, um, to be generic is not to be worldly. Um, where we find these moments of universality are in these things that are very specific. And Tarantino has always been one to be very specific with the, his fetishes and his likes when it comes to his films. And even when they're as shaggy as this one is, um, they cause me to fall in love with them. So, I mean, for all of that, for for Brad Pitt turning in another wonderful performance, for my... Um, incredible infatuation with Zoe Bell, who has a very small role in this, uh, for everything in the movie, for the way that he can film a tense scene like Cliff Booth um, walking into the town that's kind of been overrun by 
Manson's flunkies and hippies and followers and have that incredible moment where <laughs> Cliff Booth walks out and finds that someone flattened the tires of Dalton's car and he makes someone pay for that. There are these just incredible moments that linger with me months after I've seen the film. If you take Leonardo DiCaprio as a stand-in for Tarantino himself, it does... I think there's also an added layer of self-reflection, not just that the Hollywood that Tarantino loves is going away, but that his place there, you, I think it's, I don't think it's a far-fetched reading to say that like this movie might potentially also be about Tarantino asking about his own place in the world where Hollywood seems to be moving away from the stuff that he wants. Um, Sure. So not just the stuff that he wants, but also his relationship to uh, to Hollywood as well. And the fact that the movie changes history to make the hero save the day and remain relevant, potentially, um, almost ends up feeling a bit sad to me, only because, of course, that's not what actually happened. Uh, in the case of Inglorious Bastards, when they kill Hitler, it's obviously different, and that's surprising. But, like, Hitler does die at the war's conclusion, and not long afterwards. So it's the, the, the details are obviously changed, but not by so much that uh, it feels like history takes a wildly different course. Whereas the, 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 the divergent path here feels wildly inconceivable i suppose um and so if 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 the way that tarantino is like i'm going to be relevant uh or if, if the character is like i'm going to be relevant even if it's not tarantino himself uh in in progressing down this story by taking a different path then i go away from it going well that's not what happened and that and and for him to want to be so is is a nice fantasy i guess but yeah you know the thing that i keep coming back to is um i mean that that's what fiction serves for some people right that that i wish i i wish things could be this way as opposed to that way that's what science fiction is that's what fantasy is that that's what a lot of writing is um, I think the criticisms about, well, Tarantino's just going to the well again, you know, with this kind of revisionist history lesson. Um, I, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to argue that when we give accolades to, we don't do this anymore, but certainly Woody Allen went to the same well dozens of times. Martin Scorsese, who we almost talked about with the Irishman, which I will say, even though we're not talking about it is a fantastic movie, but um, Scorsese is certainly guilty of um, maybe in different ways, but playing on the same themes again and again and again in his work. And I, I never get tired of it because the more that I see, the more that I kind of, come to understand something with that. And I, I think as, again, I think shaggy is the operative word here as as shaggy as Tarantino's films are as single minded as they are at times, it never fails to elicit a response to me. And it never fails in to at least elicit, um, 
an understanding of something when I watch it, whether in this, it's kind of my own connection to movies and to Hollywood and, and how I came into that, or whether it's with Django Unchained and, um, slavery and racism, or really again with, with Tarantino, because when he talks about those things, he's talking about them in the language of spaghetti Westerns and, 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 and films of that nature. And, uh, Inglorious Bastards with World War II films in, in the way he's always talking about the entertainment that he grew up in and, and how that relates back to him. So I, I guess I'm the weak one for being in the bag to just kind of fall for it again, because I, I find that it informs my own dialogue with those films and my own upbringing around them. I mean, I don't know if I'd say weak. Uh <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that being said, John, I think this brings us to the last film that uh, we want to talk about. Um, so why don't you kick it off? Absolutely. My, f- We didn't do this as a ranked uh, set of uh, movies, but my number one movie of the year, absolutely without a doubt, is Parasite by Bong Joon-ho. Um, he had directed uh, Snowpiercer, which, uh, another film which I absolutely adored. Um and the host, which I'm not as hot on, but is still good. But uh, Parasite, I feel like, and I think both of us caught on to this, the thematic parallels between this and uh, Knives Out. Um, this is a movie largely, almost like exclusively about uh, class. Um, this is a movie where a uh, sort of clueless rich family gets... Uh, basically gets grifted by a uh, lower class family who one by one sort of tricks their way into jobs working for the rich family. And this is a movie that it, it is at times hilarious. It is at times sad it is at times terrifying. Um, and it's largely built around the tension of like, I mean, off, ob- obviously observing the, the ways in which, uh, uh, I think the directors even said like this movie is about capitalism. So just take that as read uh, about the, how the 1% live, how the 99% live. And, but it's, I would say that like knives out, it is a movie of increasing like escalation and tension. Um, it is put together, I think very well, but unlike knives out, I think that it is kind of wild. Um, it, it is, if he, instead of like a prog a mathy prog band playing in seven four um time signatures or whatever this is like like noise rock bands playing with you know 10,000 amplifiers or something it is uh it is f- the the energy the um the absolute just wild shit that happens in this movie i love it so much that's probably where i'll stop for now chris what about you <laughs> So I will agree and disagree on some of the points that you made. Um, like you, it is my number one film of the year as well. I, by a long shot, it's the best thing I saw this year. Um, when it comes to my exposure and experience with Bong Joon-ho, I am—I'll uh, differ from you. I—I I like Snowpiercer. I find it to be an engaging film. I love the host. Um, I am. Partly because I—I I came to Bong Joon-ho um, first through. Um, now my brain is leaving me. That's what happens when you have 
just a little too much to drink and your podcast, which is supposed to be an hour or so, goes into hour two. Uh, I first came to him with Memories of Murder. That was the first film that I saw. And uh, I used to follow this it, before Twitch was a streaming service for video games. It, there used to be a Twitch film website uh, way back in the day. And they were crazy uh, for uh, Bang Juho and they were crazy for the host um, having um, early pictures as to what the monster looked like and to what it was going to be about that I was in a frenzy by the time that I saw the film and when I saw the film it did not disappoint so much so that I quickly devoured everything else Barking Dogs Don't Bite um, Mother which is another fantastic film mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it, Snowpiercer, um, Okja, which was a Netflix film that was also very good, um, yeah, right like up to Parasite, yeah. which pound for pound, as much as I enjoy the host for what it is and for how it plays into my childhood passions for monsters, Parasite is by far his best film, I think. Uh, there, there's just no doubting it. Uh, the parallels to Knives Out are very apparent. The interesting thing, though, that um, you didn't mention about the parallel, but this is a movie, too, that is so tightly constructed. This movie doesn't work if it is not as tightly constructed as as it is. Um, and uh, it, it is very much a story about class, about privilege. Um, the parasite in the film is essentially this very um, poor family that leeches on to this very rich, affluent, and slightly oblivious family as each member cons their way into the household as another profession, whether it is an English tutor or an art tutor or a chauffeur or a housemaid. Um, And that in and of itself is an amazing premise. And uh, Bong Joon-ho milks it for comedy, he milks it for drama, uh, he milks it for satire, but this is a Bong Joon-ho film, so it can't just have that. And once that premise is firmly established and the Parasite family has worked their way into the affluent family, the twist occurs. The pre- <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the prestige, right? And and you get this twist that throws everything on its ear and um, turns the film into something completely different while at the same time commenting still on privilege, on privilege and on class and on everything else. Um, so it, it, huge parallels to Knives Out, but the thing that I really was drawn to was how tight it is. And when it bursts into left field, um, how it manages to keep that portion of it just as tightly constructed as the first part. What winds up happening with a lot of films is you have this great, great, great setup and it keeps building, 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 and then bam, twist and everything goes to chaos. That never happens in Parasite. It never happens with the Bong Bong Joon-ho film. And when this film gets crazy at the end and it does get crazy. So crazy. it It is still never forgetful of what it is trying to talk about when it talks about class, when it talks about privilege, when it talks about the haves and the have nots. Um, and it's just, it's fricking brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I think that even if you were a person that says, well, I don't, I'm not a politically minded person. I think you could, I, I think that this stuff, that's those commentaries are 
obvious, but like, yeah, this this is a movie about like as it, it, again, like Booksmart, it succeeds on its own merits. Um, <clears throat> it is it like the 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 messages that are there definitely there, um, and you definitely are able to read into it, and like it's it's that's not that's not a hard thing to draw on, but I think that the ways in which it builds comedy drama and tension like that scene where they are all hiding underneath the uh hiding in the living room underneath it because they're not supposed to be in the house um i was practically ripping the armrest out of my chair uh i was the tension was so white knuckle um and then when when things pop off at the birthday party I was almost like, I almost shrieked with laughter. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's the thing. This film goes to some crazy places. Um, it, it, it definitely lets loose, but even in those moments where it is batshit insane, the batshit insanity that occurs is all playing toward those themes of privilege and class distinctions and things of that. Right. When, when, when everything cuts loose at the birthday party, and the and the violence happens, and it happens crazy, and the quickly. Res- yeah, and quickly. The response to that violence is still very much couched in class. It's still very much couched in privilege, right? There's the moment where, so we're not going to about talk too much about it. Um, at this uh, taping, uh, do we call it taping when we're doing this digital? I don't know, but Parasite is still kind of. Um, it's not, it, it's not streaming yet. It, it's not available di- digitally. It, it's hopefully still playing in an area. Really encourage you to see the, the film, but when the violence occurs at the birthday party and things happen, um, the, the thought of the affluent family is still to the servants. Hey, don't worry about the servants getting killed or, you know, ha- having things happen, you know, take care of my son, take care of my family, take care of me. Um, you know, that is very clear, uh, in the moments of insanity and in the moments of violence. And when the twists happen, when the, the twists happen and you find out, um, you know, as normal and affluent as kind of dim witted as the rich family may be, they have a secret hiding in the house. And that secret, that hiding in the house is one that has very much to do with privilege and class as well. Um, and everything that arrives from that scenario arrives, you know, because of those pieces that um, Bong Joon-ho is commenting on in the film. So it is certainly a more wild movie than Knives Out, even though it is just as meticulously crafted. But as wild as it gets, it never fails to remember what that wildness is in service to. Um, and so few films do that. And Bong Joon-ho Every single film, as crazy as it gets, always does that. I, I, I there are a few filmmakers right now um, that I can think of that are consistently at this level of excellence with every single film that they put out. I like. I'm. I'm definitely 100% ready for whatever, uh, whatever he wants to do next. Which, I mean. I saw something today about potentially them turning Parasite into a TV series, which I don't know. Uh, I have no concept of what that would look like, but sure, like more Parasite or more something else. Like I'm definitely part of uh, Team Bong, Joho, uh, Bong Joon-ho. So. <laughs> With whatever he does, right? Yeah, I'll show up for anything at this point. Um, <clears throat> the night is getting late. 
and uh, I think we need to get past our bedtimes. Were there any other 2019 movies you wanted to shout out uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, so just a couple. Um, I, again, 2019 was a year I didn't really get to watch as many films as I wanted to. Hopefully that's something that I'm going to change with 2020, but just a few more films to kind of shout out. Um, in doing research for this, I saw um, Ari Oster's Midsommar, his follow-up to Her- Hereditary, which was, for me, surprisingly good. It touches on the same things. It is a horror film, but it's couched in something else. So where Hereditary was a portrait of a family dealing with tremendous loss and using horror to kind of convey that. Um, Midsommar is a breakup movie and using horror to convey the terror of breaking up with someone that you've been in love with. Uh, And it's funny and it's weird and it's disgusting and it gets kind of crazy and it is kind of like the Wicker Man, but it's also not like the Wicker Man. So I really, really recommend it. Um, We talked a little bit about this. I did see Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, and I'll bring this comparison up only because I heard it on my favorite film podcast, which is Film Spotting. Um, And that was comparing The Rise of Skywalker to another kind of um, massive franchise ending film, Avengers Endgame. Having seen them both, um, there are pluses and minuses to both of them. I wasn't really impressed with Rise of Skywalker. I felt there was a little too much fan service, um, even though there are some joyful moments to be had. But I think we kind of forget how blockbusters can really work well. And I think Avengers Endgame, for as much as it kind of gets a little unwieldy at times, there are some real moments of pure joy to be had there and some real character moments. Now, perhaps that comes from the fact that we've seen these characters in 20 films over the course of 11 years, whereas with Star Wars, it's nine films over the course of uh, 87, 97, 40 something years, right? 42 years, maybe perhaps, but, um, we talked a lot about smaller independent films in this episode, but the blockbusters always are going to have something to offer. They're always are keeping the pulse on the mainstream of America, which we are all a part of whether we want to think of that or not. Um, so there's a lot to love. There's a lot that I still want to see. I have a lot on, on deck and maybe we'll talk about that in future episodes. What about you, John? Anything else that you saw you want to comment on? Uh, I also saw Midsummer uh, either this week or last week. Uh, and I just got to say that uh, I think I'm very excited for more movies to star Florence, uh, Florence Pugh. Uh, she is also in the movie that I want to recommend, uh, which probably would have made my list uh, if I had seen it earlier, which was the Greta Gerwig adaptation of Little Women. Uh, I I won't lie. I know I had never read the book. I never watched any of the adaptations. I came into it as a complete newcomer. And the structure of that film, the way that it is more or less anchored in the sort of like later or like fully adult years of uh of joe and her sisters sort of like as they've all sort of separated and then coming back as beth is falling ill and then reflecting back on in on their childhood together um i think it is it does this magic trick where 
they will introduce characters and your first introduction to them in the present day is, is is warm and you like them and then you show them doing really terrible things to each other and you're like wow these people that's horrible but it never leaves them behind and they stay with you the whole time and so through like it really does the through thick and thin kind of like book smart actually like <clears throat> these people don't abandon each other uh, or they do but like stuff pulls them back together and they're able to like mend their relationships and every every like that that is a that is a hundred percent there are parts that are funny that are like at the two-thirds of the way through the movie when you finally meet the dad for the first time and it's fucking bob odenkirk i i laughed <laughs> it was just delightful uh and and yeah it's a hundred percent a tearjerker uh it is is incredibly is incredibly great and has actually made me want to go like read the books watch the other versions to see like what are the differences because i understand that there are some but uh no it is i'm so happy that i again greta gerwig is another person who i'm like okay the next movie she makes i want to go see yeah that's probably my biggest regret that i didn't get to watch little women in time for this um it's it, it's next up for when i can get to see it for sure yeah well uh thanks so much uh for chatting with me for longer than planned uh we'll uh we'll catch you next time all right thank you john see you next time